Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's July 13th, and I'm your host, Christine Hargis. For today's healthcare show, I've got Molly Fool healthcare writer Brian Feroldi on the line. Brian, welcome to the show. It's your first time on. It is. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, happy to have you here. So Brian has a background in healthcare before he came to The Fool as a writer. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience? Sure. I worked for a medical device company for the better part of a decade, and I did marketing and sales for them, but I spent uh, almost uh, 10 years as a, a rep for them, which is uh, one of the topics we're going to be exploring in today's show. Exactly. You nailed it. So with that experience in mind, we decided that today on the show, we wanted to talk about how healthcare companies market their products. And this is something that the average person might not be super familiar with, but there is this whole world of marketing with relationships between doctors and these drug representatives. And a large majority of it, well, hopefully all of it, is completely legal. I mean, you'd be really surprised what all is actually totally allowed. I know when I first joined the industry, the I, I didn't even know that drug reps existed, so it was complete uh, information overload to me. But yeah, I was I was shocked when I when I really dug deep into uh, what goes on out there. So, what are some of the common practices? Sure. So, just in general, medical device companies and drug companies need to create demand for the pro- for their products, and one of the ways that they do that is they employ an army in some cases of uh, reps and clinicians that live out that cover a territory. And really, it's their job to go to doctors and healthcare providers in the area and create awareness and demand for their drug or product. And there's plenty of ways that they can do that. Uh, but uh, in general, they go from practice to practice all day, every day, trying to get in front of doctors and talk to them about what their drug does and how it works and how it's different than competitors. And uh, there's a couple of ways that they can do so. They can provide promotional materials like brochures or discounted copay cards. In many cases, they buy doctors lunches or dinners or breakfasts, and and they also provide uh, free samples to the practices. So this is a pretty big money industry. And to me, that kind of opens the door where there is a lot of potential for abuse here. I mean, you don't want anybody paying money under the table to promote their drugs, say, off-label. And that's a big part of this, too, is that you can only spend this money on, say, buying a doctor lunch if you're marketing the drug for its approved uses, and that's it. And we've actually seen a couple of companies get into trouble for this in the past. Oh, absolutely. And, 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 and beyond just providing lunches, um, doctors, uh, and, uh, excuse me, healthcare companies can actually provide cash payments um, in many cases, to doctors or healthcare providers, and one of the one of the ways that they do so is they pay them to be a speaker for them. So that's when the drug company uh, sets up a say a dinner program, and they pay one of these doctors to come in and talk about their experience using the drug. And in many cases, they can get paid you know in the thousands of dollars for one evening's work. And there's been plenty of cases where doctors can earn over a hundred thousand dollars. Per year from just from doing this from just a single company, so there's big money involved. And with big money, you also sometimes get big fines if you cross these boundaries. One company that's had to face a pretty heavy amount of fines is Insus. Yeah, absolutely. They they it, um, news broke that some of their providers were essentially taking bribes, where they would be doing speaker programs with nobody in the room. So they would pay these providers thousands of dollars to come and talk to nobody which was essentially a backdoor way of, of bribing them. 
and the company and the uh, and the uh, the healthcare professionals face some big fines and and obviously it's not a good practice. I want to be a fly on the wall in that room of that presentation with the the doctor sitting up there just being like, well, you know, we've got subsis, I uh, can stop your pain. <laughs> Hopefully, this presentation is going pretty well. It, it would be pretty. It would be pretty fun. Another big name that has made the news for some less than perfectly uh, legal marketing was GlaxoSmithKline in China. Actually, in 2014, they faced the largest ever corporate fine for this kind of thing, which was almost $500 million. They had sales staff bribing physicians, all sorts of shady stuff. Interestingly, when I was digging into this in my research, I saw that the stock actually went up a little bit on the news of this fine. So, I think people were expecting an even bigger fine. So, clearly, there are lawmakers watching out for this kind of thing. And you you have an entire act, the Sunshine Act, dedicated to preventing shady relationships between these drug reps and the doctors. Yeah, the Sunshine Act was uh, was enacted in 2010. And really, the, the goal of it was to just make these relationships uh, publicly available. So the goal was to increase transparency. So now any food or um, payments that are made to doctors must be reported in. And in many cases, the, 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 this information is made publicly available. And it, it's, it's, it was really a, uh, a great law, and it really helped to change some of the, the bad practices that are out there. Did you, on the field, actually see changes due to this act? Absolutely. I had a number of providers that I would regularly provide lunches for. As soon as the bill went into effect, say, okay, we are stopping all lunch programs. We are not going to be accepting any food. So this, this absolutely had its, uh, its effect. So with those doctors that said, we don't want to do these lunches anymore, it wasn't because the lunches were necessarily illegal. Was it just that they didn't want to have to bother with all the reporting that was then required? Yeah, and it's not even them that has to do the reporting. The, 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 it, it, it is the, uh, the drug and medical device companies that do track every, everything, so they don't even have to do it. It's just that the information becomes publicly available, and no doctor wants to have to answer to their patients about, why are you accepting money from XYZ drug company when you're also prescribing me their product? That's just an uncomfortable conversation that I think many of them did not want to have. That's really interesting. So that kind of begs the question, why don't we just make this entire thing illegal? Yeah, that's that. That's a, a very common question. I mean, drugs are very expensive, and patients absolutely hate the idea that their money is going towards practices like this, right? So you 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 understand why there's such aggression against these practices. But the unfortunate truth is that this is uh, through reps is really how a lot of doctors get their information. Um, I mean, a common uh, pushback against that is, well, we have trade shows and there's journals, so can't the doctors get that information that how? Uh, I, I can tell you firsthand that's, that, that, that's not enough. Um, the doctors are very pressed for time. They are under constant pressure to see patient after patient after patient. And I think uh, patients do want their doctors to be up to date on the most um, latest uh, drugs that are out there, the latest devices. Plus, you know better than anybody how complex reimbursement is, for example, for drugs. So that's just a, a, a whole world that reps can really help to uh, shed some light on. Yeah, I, I agree there. I mean, you have these people that are experts in the drugs, and they can answer these really complex questions. And I think speed is a big part of it, too. I mean, if you, as a small company, can't get the word out about your drug quickly, that's really going to hold you back, especially if you're spending a ton of money as it is trying to to get this drug to to ramp up quickly. All of a sudden, if you're not turning a profit as quickly, it's slowing down your research and development efforts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
I, the example I always give is, can you, can you imagine rewinding the clock to, to 2000 and you're intuitive surgical who, who just got FDA approval for this Da Vinci system, which has really transformed the way that surgery is done. Can you imagine being the first rep to, to try and market this device? Your, your sales pitch is going out there to the physicians and saying, hey, would you like to buy my new device? It costs millions of dollars. It's going to take hours upon hours of training, the possibility that could go wrong. And oh, by the way, a patient's life is on the line while you're doing this. Would you like to sign up? I mean, if without reps, uh, I'm convinced the Da Vinci system would not exist today. And, and really, we'd all be worse off. It would have been incredibly easy to just ignore the entire potential of robotic surgery if you didn't have these reps going out there and getting the word out. Absolutely. So another element to this story about how healthcare companies market their drugs, aside from just having representatives that talk to healthcare providers and doctors, you also have direct-to-consumer advertising. And this is something that's pretty unique to the U.S. It's America is the only major market to allow direct-to-consumer DTC ads of prescription drugs. One of the companies that is really huge in this is Pfizer, which in 2014 was the first pharma to break a billion dollars in annual DTC ad spend. The runners-up, by the way, were about a third of that spend. I mean, they are the Goliath of the TV commercial area. And this is another interesting moral question. Should these companies be allowed to put a commercial on TV for a drug? Yeah, right. You, you see both sides of it. I mean, on the one hand, raising awareness for a disease state or drug, you know, that could be a good thing. If a patient sees a commercial and says, hey, I might have that, and then they go talk to their doctor and they can get help, you know, you can argue that that's a good thing. But on the flip side, it does create, it does hold potential to create artificial demand for a drug where you could imagine a patient walks in the doctor and says, hey, I saw this on TV. And I want it. And the doctor might not even think they're a good candidate for it, but they could feel some pressure to, to prescribe it just to make the patient happy. Absolutely. So pivoting the conversation a little bit to how investors can use this information, what does this all mean to, to an investor looking at a company and trying to decide whether or not they have a solid marketing effort and team? Right. So, so I learned firsthand that just because you launch a drug or a medical device, it could be great, it could be wonderful, but that doesn't mean it's going to sell well. There, there is truly a skill to, to marketing a device, and, and it's, it's something that's not always something that uh, a company can get correct. So I kind of have uh, three guideposts that I look at when I'm investing um, to try and figure out ahead of time, okay, if this gets approved, what kind of chances does it have of, of seeing market success? So first question I ask is, does the company... Uh, that's launching the product have a presence in the disease state already so or, or, or a partner that uh, is in the disease state so for example if Novo Nordisk who's kind of the, the big dog in diabetes if they launched a new diabetes drug they will have in my mind no problem getting the word out and getting to doctors because they already have those relationships in place but if you have a new company or, or an established company that's trying to switch over to a brand new to disease state that can be tricky. So that's something that, um, that uh, they, they might not get right the first time. And this is a lot of the times that you see a company partnering with another company on their marketing efforts. If you know going into it, I don't have any diabetes doctor relationships. And so you can have a partnership where you'll forego maybe a royalty on the sales for somebody else to take over for you and use their existing relationships and their marketing power. 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and that's especially true for, for smaller companies. I mean, employing sales reps is very expensive and it makes a whole lot more sense to bring in a big partner with kind of relationships already in place to help get the word up faster. Absolutely. So what is the second thing that you look for? Sure. The second thing is, is there a unmet medical need or is this uh, a disease state that there's no other approved drugs? So one, one area that I look at are orphan drug makers, which you know, can charge huge premiums and you can bet that their patients are watching the FDA decision, biting their fingers to see if it's going to go their way. So that's automatic built-in demand. Uh, another uh, one company that um, I have my eye on recently is called Acadia Pharmaceuticals. They just launched a drug called Nuplazid, which is um, going to be used to treat Parkinson's disease psychosis. And this is a, um, a disease that there's really no great um, treatment options for currently. So Acadia chose to, to launch the drug themselves, and I don't see any competition. So I, I think they'll have quite an easy time marketing it. Acadia is a really interesting story. I mean, this is a pretty huge indication. Uh, Parkinson's disease psychosis occurs in about 20% of Parkinson's disease patients. So a lowball estimate would peg that at around 200,000 Americans currently suffering. And meanwhile, this is a drug with a $23,000 annual price tag. So, I mean, you multiply that out and you get some really big numbers. But realistically, you might be looking at around a $4 billion annual peak sale. And they're not really up against any competition. So even though they are a pretty new company, pretty small company, they should be able to very quickly build these relationships that we've talked so much about. Yeah, that's the theory, right? Yep. So we've got uh, number one for what investors should look for is, does the company have a presence in the market already? Number two, is it meeting an unmet medical need or are there no other approved drugs? What is the third? Sure. So this is kind of the, the best case scenario of all. And this is when another company is going to do all the work for you for free. These are what I refer to as kind of off-balance sheet uh, sales forces. That does not sound like it should be a real thing. <laughs> yeah. These are, are very, very, very rare. So when, when a company like this comes, comes along, I definitely put it on my watch list. So this is a case where a drug comes out and it works either in, combina in, in combination with some other existing drug. It makes that drug work better. So I know you and um, Todd have talked a lot on the show about Portola Pharmaceuticals and their uh, FXA inhibitor antidote. Um, you can bet that if, if that does hit, hit the market that Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, Bristol-Myers, they will be screaming um, from the rooftops about the drug's approval. Portola won't have to do anything. You know I love Portola Pharmaceuticals, and I'll also add to that, and we have talked about them a ton, so I won't go too in the weeds here, but these companies, the big guys, have already been handing Portola money to develop this Factor 10A inhibitor uh, antidote. So, you would think that they're also going to be more than willing to hand out more money to get this drug off the ground. Yeah, absolutely. And another one I believe you talked about on the show is uh, Optotech. Their, their drug, Fovista, works in combination with... Uh, uh, other drugs that are already on the market, uh, Novartis is Lucentis, uh, Avastin, and it really makes those drugs work better. So, same story. If 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 Optotech can get approval for Fovista, you can bet that those big boys will be pushing it. For sure. Brian, is there anything else that you want to get out there for listeners before we close the show? Maybe an example of uh, what could go wrong in the marketing of a drug? Sure. Again, do, doing this the right way is 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 really tough. And uh, we've seen a couple of cases where 
Um, companies tried to, to launch on their own and, and they didn't have the relationships in place. And it can be exceptionally hard um, to, to be a small company and try and take on an established market. So one recent example is Kering's uh, Biopharmaceuticals. Their, drugs, their drug is called Orixia, which is used to, treat, uh, to increase serum phosphate levels in patients with um, chronic kidney disease. This drug was launched in 2014. It was going up directly against Sanofi, uh, Sanofi's Renvela, and doctors really were shy about prescribing it, and there wasn't much Karen's can do to, to, build, to build, uh, raise awareness for it. So we just heard recently that uh, they were going to be increasing their sales force by, by 50% in order to get the word out. And that's definitely not a cheap decision. Not at all. All right. Thanks so much for your thoughts today, Brian. It was fun having you on the show. Thanks for having me. So, listeners, I want to let you know about something kind of fun and foolish that's going on in our office right now. Tom Gardner, our co-founder and CEO, is walking five marathons in five days on his treadmill desk, which, this being the healthcare show, I figured this is something that I should probably tell you guys about. So, he basically, he lost a bet about the market dropping 10% at some point in 2014. And so, after losing this bet, he now has to walk these five marathons. But he's not just doing it, but he's making it into a big charity effort to raise money for DC Prep, which is a school that provides awesome college prep education in historically underserved areas of DC. They're a great organization. They're perfectly aligned with The Fool in that both of us believe learning has no limits. So, if you want more info or to support Tom in this walk, check out our campaign page at 131, that's the number 131.fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell based solely on what you hear. For Brian Feroldi, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! <laughs>